Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hello and welcome to The Deal Room, where every Wednesday we talk specifically about all things corporate finance. From the biggest M&A and PE deals to the strategy that drives business decision making. We aim to bring what you learn in the classroom to life with real world examples and hopefully at the same time have some fun with it. So let's dive in. Welcome back to The Deal Room. And before we begin, if you do follow us on social media, you might have seen that it is the Spotify wrapped time of the year. And we had that for this very podcast and just wanted to share and say basically a huge Thank you to the community for really boosting the awareness of this this show. Super appreciated by Stephen and I, but the wider team. But a couple of stats for you. Our followers have gone up 92%. Number of streams, 87%. Number of listeners, 86% up for 2023. We were streamed in 101 countries, if you can believe. Uh, well, I, I'm definitely not going to set you the quiz question. Name me 101 countries. We've <laughs> be here a long time, but that's pretty incredible. Uh, the breakout episode was the one where Piers really eloquently explained the Silicon Valley kind of blow up. That was such a good description that he gave. You should definitely go back and check that out. They actually had 617% more downloads than our average episode. So Stephen... You're doing well for your your kickoff of the show. However, that's a pretty big number Piers put up for that one. Yeah, well, look, I'm trying to learn from the master. Um, <laughs> that episode, I remember, I remember, I was I was doing some decorating and I was listening to that episode. And I was thinking, gosh, this is this is pretty good actually. So yeah, definitely go back, definitely go back and, and have a listen. But those are brilliant stats, and uh, long may it continue. Uh, we will continue to evolve the podcast. Oh, yeah. uh, mix it up a little bit over the course of the next year and and hopefully see some similar numbers in 2024 yeah and who knows we could have some special guests coming in a few months or over the coming months so so watch this space but one of the things that actually a stat that stood out to me was that the most popular way that the podcast is shared is actually via whatsapp so people just grabbing the link and then just putting it into whatsapp chat stuff like that i know a lot of students have like an applications chat and stuff like that so yeah, it'd be amazing if you could drop it in those 
then please do so. That would be awesome. Um, but look, yeah, I, th- I think quite a lot of that might just be me sharing it with my family. So. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh let's go over what we're going to talk about uh in this episode and the first kind of subject matter we're going to talk about the singer enrique inglesias who has closed a deal with a new york company you might not have heard of them they're called influence media partners but they're backed by a very infamous asset manager blackrock as well as others and he sold all of his catalog of songs recorded to date and his image rights and we're going to kind of dive into that but before we do Got a couple of quick fire Enrique questions for both you and the, and the wider audience. So his biggest song, you know, he is a Latin superstar, by the way. His biggest song actually on YouTube in terms of streams is a, a song called uh, Balando. I, I'd never heard of that song. It's Balando featuring... Decima Bueno and Quita de Zuma. Have you ever heard of that song? I guess That's, we're in no, the wrong no, geographic location for um, yeah. for that. My question then is, that was nine years ago, that song. So it's fairly recent in terms of his career. Um, how many streams on YouTube do you think that Belando has had? An individual song individual that I've song. never heard of before. Not that that says a lot, to be honest. I'm not going to use that as my as my baseline to try and figure this out. So, oh, I've got a little, I've got a bit of background information because I know that uh, Iglesias has been streamed about 40 billion times across Spotify and Apple Music. So I'm going to use that as my kind of anchor, and that's across all of his songs and all of his albums and everything like that. So let's say that this, let's say that it's one percent. 400 million one percent of that four billion because youtube's maybe slightly smaller Actually, mm, let's go 800 million views <laughs> well I, I like the way you started with the number trying yeah to i know i fell off a cliff at the end so this yeah. is going to blow your mind that one music video has had 3.4 billion views <laughs> gosh that is go. insane and i've never heard funny. of it I mean, I, I certainly am one of the people that on planet Earth that missed that one, but um, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure any Latino listeners are absolutely going to crucify me for for saying that. But my other second one, before we move on quickly, is that uh, Enrique does have lots of other business interests outside of music. He is into real estate, as many uh, in his situation are, particularly given. Uh, his location in Miami, where he's lived for many years. He also has restaurants. He has a partnership, actually, with Rafa Nadal and yes. Paul Gasal and Cristiano Ronaldo. They all have a little club where they own some restaurants in Madrid, Miami, and Ibiza. Very nice. But my question is, he's also, of course, we are talking Enrique Iglesias. He has his own fragrances. Oof. And my question is... What is the name of his two major scents? <laughs> That's an impossible question to answer if you don't know it. But just think uh, about aftershaves and what ridiculous names they generally have. Okay, and then throw right. a little Enrique sauce in there and you're probably on right. the right track. What about kind of allure or passion or... You're on the right track. Or maybe just his name. Maybe, maybe one's called Enrique, one's called Enrique, and one's called Iglesias. I, I don't know. I, this is playing well outside of my comfort zone here. 
<laughs> so, so you were pretty close to be fair with the first guess. The first one's called Deeply Yours. Oof. Oh. <laughs> and then he likes to step it up a gear for the night out. Adrenaline. <laughs> That's a toxic, toxic combination right there. <laughs> get cancelled if he does too many more of those. But um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. He was such a kind of multifaceted individual. So there you well, go. Well, well, there you go. And so, look, before we dive into this this actual deal and why music rights are such an, uh, a recurring theme, actually, for a couple of years now. I remember David Bowie um, deal that went through um, not so long ago as well. But we're also going to talk about just to give you a, a heads up. Unicorns, roughly a third of unicorns have seen valuations dramatically shrink, limiting their IPO prospects, was a headline on Bloomberg. Then the other one is the M&A deal we'll focus on is Roche, one of the world's largest drug manufacturers, and they've made an acquisition of Carmot, who you might not know who they are, but the deal is pretty big, just over 3 billion US dollars. And it's all about this idea of obesity medicines, which I know, Stephen, you've got lots of color on. So Let's kick it off then. And why on earth are we talking about Enrique Iglesias then? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's December, and you know, we want to we want to discuss some interesting things. And Iglesias is a really good story because it represents a probably fifteen to twenty year trend of investors, alternative investors, buying up back catalogs of very famous musicians and Iglesias is just the latest and the one that was announced this week just the latest in an incredibly long line reaching back from Bieber to Dua Lipa through to Bruce Springsteen through to Bob Dylan and the Red Hot Chili Peppers who have all monetized and secure almost securitized their back catalog packaged it up and sold it to an investor that likes the look of the forward-looking cash flows and the revenue that comes from the stability of the streams that will get played on various different streaming sites in the future. So Iglesias, just a little bit about the deal before we step back and think about actually what this industry looks like, because it's really, really fascinating. So the deal itself, uh, so it's estimated that it is a nine-figure deal for the entire back catalogue, but not future catalogue of Inglésias. So obviously all of his major songs, none of which I've heard of, <laughs> but they've, stripped, they've racked up 40 billion streams across Spotify and, uh, and Apple. So, and also very importantly, a name, image and likeness arrangement, an NIL. Yeah, that's crazy. I, like that, that's the part that I was like, I've not seen that before, or maybe I've just not really read it close enough with those other bands that you've mentioned. No, so you do. You will not see Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen giving away a name, mm. image, and likeness arrangements, just because it, it it just doesn't make sense for them. Now, the name, image, likeness arrangement actually was originated. I was doing a little bit of work into this. It's originated in college sports in the US. So famously, college sports, such a big business, such a big industry, but it's an amateur, whether it's baseball, basketball, American football, it's an amateur league. So they can't get paid. The sports stars that are effectively 
<laughs> turning up in front of hundreds of thousands and millions of people online can't get paid. So what they created was this name image um, likeness construct where sports stars that couldn't get paid by their colleges could get paid for product endorsements, social media, autographs, everything associated with their name, image and likeness. And so this concept has been taken from the football fields in the US and brought into things like popular music stars and things like that. So everything the everything that can be commercializable from the name, image and likeness of Enrique Iglesias is now owned by influence media partners. And if you think about this just with our not necessarily dystopian, but certainly our forward looking gaze, we are thinking about this in the context of AI generated music, in the context of, you know, metaverse, in the context of all of these different initiatives that could disrupt the next 20 years of media, then name, image and likeness rights is probably not a bad shout. It's probably quite smart. It may well be actually getting ahead of the curve instead of a legacy quid-dated asset. So, so how big do you reckon that number is then? I mean, that sounds like to give up that, or not give it up, but to include that in the deal. Like, what, what would that part of the deal look like in, con- in comparison of the, the, the back catalogue then? Yeah, it's 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 hard to know. And obviously, we don't know the 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 kind of the details on this. We know that it's nine figures. And actually, uh, Inglésias' uh, <laughs> manager said that Influence Media Partners got an absolute steal. Uh, we could have so we could have sold this for a lot more, but we really like what Influence Media Partners have done with their existing. I think they uh, own the rights to artists such as Future and Blake Shelton and Logic. So they like what they've done with those artists and say, look, you know, we won't take the biggest number. Wonder, you know, this is this is really interesting. I don't know the terms of the relationship. I don't know what percentage is attributed to the monetization of the back catalogue versus what percentage may well be attributed to the future prospects of the NIL arrangements. But the way that I like thinking about this, maybe in the slightly slightly wider context, and we're going to bring in a few more names uh, in a minute, the way that I like thinking about the world of acquiring catalogues and acquiring rights to music is it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like investing in public and private markets. You've got your blue chips, right? So I would say that your blue chips are the likes of your Dylans, your Bruce Springsteens, your Pink Floyds. We know that those, that the consistency of streams is going to be relatively easy, predictable to predict out into the future. And it will probably grow in line or close to in line with the growth of the streaming industry. Much like a blue chip stock, maybe. Mm. And then you have on the other side, you've got your VC, your venture capital like deals, where you're taking a punt on an up and coming star and thinking, all right, well, we, we have as much more vol- future volatility around the streaming capability. Maybe they're a one hit wonder, maybe they're big for a year and then die out. But we're going to take a punt because if we own the relationship between a future Justin Bieber or a future Taylor Swift, although that's a totally different situation, then we're really onto something big. 
So you've got the stable cash flows of the blue chips, which are obviously very attractive. And then you've got the more venture style plays, which are a little bit more risky. So, so from a career, career aspect then, given there's a lot of um, students listening, how do you actually enter this sort of part of alternatives? Like, is it just the thing that kind of would happen much later? Or can you come from it from a different angle where it's kind of the marketing meets the investing uh, in this kind of perfect space where it's music, marketing and finance or... Yeah, you you can definitely come at it from two angles. And, be- and bearing in mind, this industry is absolutely tiny. So the mm. IMP, the Influence Media Partners who bought Iglesias, they, they, their, their biggest fund is a $750 million fund. Not small, but you're probably going to have five or six managers on that. And the kind of the OG of uh, music back catalogue acquisitions is a uh, company called Hypnosis. Really interesting backstory, by the way, and there's a fantastic Netflix documentary about them. The hypnosis, the name stems from the company, uh, the company that used to create all of the album artwork, the really famous 1970s Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. They're a very kind of part of the zeitgeist. And then they turned, they used that name and turned it into the hypnosis songs fund. Um, and it's a portfolio worth about $3 billion. But yet, if you look at their team, I think there's only about 11 or 12 people in the team. Mm. So this is not a massive industry. And I actually do know a couple of people that have managed to transition from alternative investment managers into this more buying up of music rights. Now, the people that I know focus more on uh, scores for films, film scores and things like that, Mm. which is still a market for. You know, you're going to get a lot of royalties out of that. You've got to project the future cash flows. You've got to do your typical banking stuff or your typical investing stuff. But it really is quite a big niche. And you probably have to while away, maybe at an alternative asset manager for a while in order to get your opportunity. Mm. And it's so interesting as well, just given the way that media is consumed now and, and I guess film series, films themselves, content. So like Netflix, have you got any examples of Netflix where there's a big one that blows up as a, as a, as a major one, a talking point, a cultural talking point almost. Yeah. And then it's like, yeah. they, and then all these, I, I guess, young people who've never actually heard a lot of these songs in their original form, all of a sudden it's woven back into popular culture again. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> the big one was last year's Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush related to right. stranger things and I was, I was actually looking at this earlier on and Kate Bush owns the rights to all of her music and she has not sold out and she has benefited from this spike in running up that hill and in one week last year there were 57 million chart eligible eligible streams just on Spotify that would have netted her $200,000 that's what the estimate the estimates are. And overall on that song, it's looking like she's going to get about four and a half million dollars in 2022. Just imagine you are a relatively well-to-do, slightly not over the hill, but slightly faded music star. And suddenly you're seeing four and a half million dollars enter your bank balance. <laughs> it's quite, <laughs> it's quite nice. Oh. Uh, and obviously, if you if you own the if you own the rights to that, if you own the back catalogue, then if you, you know, you would you would want to see. 
and this might be part of the role of influence media partners, you might want to place an Iglesias mm. song within a hopefully zeitgeisty TV show and see a spike and obviously benefit from the spike. So that's part maybe of the, the strategy of these oh, types of organizations. Lots of deal making in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, but I just want to, I, I want to finish on this. I just want to go back to hypnosis just because this is staggering and it's really good. Whenever I load up Spotify, it's really good to understand this. So the hypnosis songs fund, they own the rights to artists from 50 Cent to Neil Young to Red Hot Chili Peppers and Shakira. They have 150 of the most successfully and culturally relevant song catalogs of all time, including 121 or out of 519 songs in Spotify's Billions Club and 55 of Rolling Stone's top 500 greatest songs of all time. So if you think about that as a defensible asset that is not replicatable. You're not going to have another Smells Like Team Spirit by Nirvana. So in that sense, in terms of thinking about this as an asset, it's like a precious, you know, it's a precious asset. There's only one of them. It's a little bit like a piece of art. But unlike a piece of art, you can monetize it. So that's where we start thinking about it as a very attractive scarcity plus revenue stream type asset. Mm. That's interesting. All right. Well, look, let, let's move on to the second subject and talk unicorns. And perhaps then, just so that everyone is educated and informed, perhaps we can start with what, what is a unicorn before we go into the unicorn situation as it stands right now? Yeah, so a unicorn, this was, this was a, a term that came up about 10 years ago, and it represented the then elite club of private companies that had received a valuation of over a billion dollars. So these are private companies, so been venture-backed, that have received a valuation of over a billion dollars through an investment round. And now unicorns were quite exciting about 10 years ago because there was hardly any of them. But now unicorn has become relatively boring because there are so many unicorns out there. Uh, and Decca unicorns have become the thing, and then Center unicorns, there's only a couple of them, maybe three or four hundred billion dollar private companies out there. So a unicorn, it's this thing that we track, but it's, you know, there's quite a lot of them now. So the story goes, well, the headline is roughly a third of unicorns seek valuation shrink, which limits IPO prospects. That's the Bloomberg article. But actually, digging into this, there's a couple of really, really important trends happening. So the article goes, out of 128 unicorns in 2021, to $128 billion, often tech companies, privately owned, privately uh, capitalized tech companies, 90% actually estimated to be valued lower in private trades in subsequent years. So actually, it's worse than a third. 90% say that their valuation has dropped. And actually, a third has dropped below unicorn status. It's pretty brutal. <laughs> going from being a unicorn and telling all your family, look, we're part of the unicorn club, and then a year later going, ah, sorry, we're not. <laughs> so, yeah. The problem. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go ahead, then. Talk, talk me through this um, kind of process, then, and then, like, how, where are we at at the moment? 
Yeah, so it's been a pretty brutal couple of years, obviously related to interest rates. And it feels like 2021 was a bit of a bubble from a private funding perspective. Now, that was okay in 2021 because there was a, there was a release valve the release valve being a very fertile and open IPO market. So when valuations were going up and up and up, often, again, we've said this before, but someone, when the music stops and the parcel is handed round, so someone needs to own that parcel. And thankfully in 2021, or not thankfully, it was the IPO market. And there were $376 billion worth of IPOs in 2021, an absolutely breakout year, which saw these unicorn valuations in the private markets made whole and kind of consecrated. Whereas in 2023, we know that 2023 has been the worst IPO year, despite a slight recovery, the worst IPO year in over a decade. So all of these unicorn valuations You know, in 2021, okay, the market starts to close in 2022 for an IPO. I'm going to hold on and hope the market recovers in 2023 for an IPO in order to keep that, to turn that unicorn private market valuation into a multi-billion dollar public market valuation. But because the IPO market has still remained so closed, these companies are almost zombie-like. They're kind of waiting, not wanting to raise new money in the private markets because the valuation is likely to go down. We have this horrible thing called a down round, which everyone wants to avoid like the plague because it casts you with a, 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 slight, a slightly negative rush. You know, but oh gosh, you were a billion dollar company. Now you're only worth 700 billion. What, what's, what's going wrong? So now there's all these companies waiting for an IPO that got pumped full of private capital at high valuations in 2021, but the IPO market is closed. So private valuations are going down and down and down. So what strategically then, if you're on the the management team, the way that you would try to engineer a positive light on your company is what putting it in context of the broader peer group and macro space, right? Because surely if you're shooting for unicorn, then you're a high growth company, but you can't maintain that in the market conditions if you're not raising more money. So is it about trying to then just say, look, this is industry-wide impacts, not us. And you just manage time to, to then get it away later. Yeah, I think I think 2022 was a year in the private markets where everyone wants everyone was incentivized to keep the valuations high right if you're a venture cap if you're a venture capital firm and you see a massive write down in one of your investments then you have to report it and it looks bad that affects future fund inflows assets under management etc so 2022 you know companies and investors alike were like all right let's just ride this out let's try not to raise any more money during 2022 this is a bad year interest rate hikes Maybe 2023 will be the year where we can IPO or maybe private markets will recover so that we can boost valuations again so that we don't have to take that hit in terms of the asset valuation of our fund. Unfortunately, 2023 turned out nothing like that. and It's been worse than 2022. So 2023, I think, speaking to my friends who work in this industry, it's been a pretty brutal year across venture capital where the industry has had to realize, look, we're going to have to cut off the bad performers. We're going to have to stop funding the companies that aren't going to make it. 
And we're going to have to drastically drop the valuation of companies that might make it. But we probably need to half the headcount, half the valuation, half the expectation, uh, half the funding requirements and start to get back on a kind of post bubble normal footing. And that hurts. That hurts for the whole industry. Yeah, it hurts. But is it a necessary evil where you have this kind of cleaning up housekeeping survival of the fittest kind of situation is this is 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 this looking back in history we could look back and see that this is just a post bubble period that is very common yeah well what's really interesting about it i think you're absolutely right what's really interesting about this is the last time we had a kind of tech bubble was in 2000 and that ripped through the public markets because so many of these tech companies ipo'd at an extremely high valuation and then went bust, or it then collapsed. And we saw the rippling effect through to a, a kind of small recession in the US. But because over the last 20 years, there's been a massive privatization in terms of capital going to these companies. In fact, there's been a, I was looking at this, looking this up, it's been a 17 times, 17x increase in the amount of assets under management in private equity from about 700 billion in, 20, in 2000 to about 12 trillion today. So what, what, what's actually happening is yes, there was a bubble and yes, the bubble burst, but it got felt in the private markets a lot more than it's been felt in the public markets. And therefore the story hasn't hit the headlines because, well, I can look at my investments and I can look at my public investments and I can see that, you know, the S&P's gone down, but maybe there's a lot of different reasons for that. It hasn't been the tech crash. But if I'm a venture capital investor, I can certainly see that there has been a bubble and that bubble has burst and it's affected the private markets. So it's a slightly different dynamic. And I think the other, the other major story here, just in terms of wrapping up 2023 and thinking about these trends. So there are a couple of exceptions to this, mm. to this 90% down round concept within the unicorn class. Now, obviously, we've spoken a lot about OpenAI and its $86 billion valuation. But the other one is SpaceX. Hmm. What was their valuation that Elon Musk yeah, this, was yes, touted this week? This week, I think they lasted it. It was only a few months ago, I think, and they were estimated valuation of 150. And then this week, it went up to 175, $175 billion, which would, at that size, that would make them the 75th largest company in the world. Crazy. Yeah. So, what, so what's interesting here is just to draw some parallels to the conversations that you have with peers on a Friday. So obviously we have the S&P 7 and then the S&P 493, which is yeah. <laughs> so the seven companies that have driven the growth in the S&P, leaving the rest relatively in their dust. It seems to be playing out a little bit in the private markets as well. So you've got the big, big beasts getting all the money, all the valuation upticks, the open AIs with the brand names and the economies of scale and the, and the, te uh, the technical barriers to entry and all of these things. You have the SpaceX's, you have the Sheehan's that have got these monster, monster valuations. And then the rest of the industry is actually really, really struggling. So this kind of bifurcation from the big players and the small players may well be happening both in the public markets and the private markets. So something that 
I would love to kind of track over 2024 to see whether this continues and whether that gap between the haves and the have nots or the good the best performers and the and the and the poor performers continues to grow be interesting to see yeah i was just thinking of interesting cycle that we've been discussing here and that you're right this guy the small zombie ones will fade and die all the money gets absorbed by these big names and then there's a big gap but then the next part of that cycle typically in my mind then is then then you get these really agile new innovative ideas from these real small startups when interest rates which will start mm. declining next year so talking maybe 2025 when money becomes a bit more affordable again and we and all of the money's been these these titans if you like become less agile because they're now so big so structured so organized so well oiled that then we start to then you know those conversations which have absolutely disappeared about the metaverse and other mm. types opportunities will probably start coming back and it'll be interesting to see then the the innovation that comes and you know it's just it's just like a cycle isn't it i guess the investment scene yeah it's like a cycle but it does need to be controlled and this is why again we talk about uh the ftc and we talk about uh antitrust and competition we've we've done a lot of we had a lot of conversations about that and the danger as we've said before is if these big beasts as soon as a as new growth appears in terms of exciting nimble agile companies that could end up bridging that gap between small and very very big we've got to make sure that these companies have all of the capital and all of the ability to get very, very big instead of just being subsumed or bought by the incumbents. And that's why, you know, markets can work, but they need to have really, really high quality guardrails. And we'll see, we'll see whether those guardrails stick in 2024. Obviously there's a couple of quite big elections coming up as well. <laughs> yeah, indeed. All right. Well, look, final story then is this M&A deal in the pharma space. So perhaps you can walk us through this one. Yeah, so this was our deal of the week on Monday. And this is a company called Roche, one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, drug manufacturers, uh, buying a biotech company, a US-based biotech company called Carmot Therapeutics. Now, this is an interesting deal for a couple of reasons. The first is that Carmot Therapeutics are in the process of developing anti-obesity drugs. So GLP-1 obesity therapeutics that have sparked a gold rush across the pharmaceutical industry, most notably with the Danish Novo Nordisk becoming Europe's most valuable company because of its Wegovy, if that's how to pronounce it, weight loss therapeutics. Now, everyone's getting very excited. I'd say in terms of the hype cycle, let's put generative AI number one of 2023. Weight loss drugs, probably number two or three, right? It's, it's okay. been a bit of a breakout year. And it makes sense. If this thing is real, especially if, if these weight loss drugs can be turned from injections into pills, which is actually something that Carmot's starting to explore, which is very exciting, then the market size is absolutely astronomical. Uh, some analysts putting it north of $100 billion. But maybe taking a very quick step back and thinking about the pharmaceutical industry and thinking about these types of businesses, these listed businesses, whether it's Roche or whether it's Novo Nordisk, 
get valued based on two aspects in the market. So these are publicly listed companies. The first is, all right, what is their revenue? What is their profitability? What is their revenue growth? Normal traditional stuff. But secondly, they get valued based on their pipeline, based on their drug pipeline. This is why valuing pharma companies and pharma M&A is so different. So Roche has had an absolutely shocking year in terms of its share price performance, slumping almost 30%, whilst Nova Nordisk has gone up almost 50%. And investors have been saying, look, your pipeline's rubbish. You don't have any potential blockbuster drugs that are going to replace the drugs that you've already got on your roster. Because remember, pharmaceuticals and drugs only have a patentable exclusivity period of a certain number of years. So when they come off patent, they become generics. And generics like your aspirin or your paracetamol are much less valuable, as you can imagine. Mm. So it's a really, really interesting game. And obviously what Roche is doing is going, look, all right, we need a piece of this. We need a pipeline that looks exciting for the investment community. And bearing in mind, Karma Therapeutics, any guesses of what their revenue is? People, uh, $3 billion acquisition, any guess on, on their revenue? I'm assuming it's pretty small. Oh, zero. <laughs> <laughs> zero. Because it hasn't developed anything yet. It's got a pipeline of three very exciting drugs, but drugs in the US take eight years to come to market. And they've got to go through many, many hurdles. So there are a lot of yes, no, pass, fail tests to get a drug to market. So a lot of these biotech companies, even listed ones, have no revenue or very limited revenue. And they're bought by big companies in order to bolster the pipeline. And in order to run a really successful bio uh, pharmaceutical company, you need this really, really nice you know, phasing out of the blockbuster drugs, phasing in of the new drugs, a little bit like a, you know, a Manchester United in the 2000s, where you're phasing out the old players and bringing in the new players and still maintaining a dominant position. It's a, it's a really interesting industry. And I think we're going to put an article in the show notes about how M&A works and how these companies are valued, how to value these companies when there isn't any revenue, when you can't do traditional discounted cash flow really really interesting stuff hmm. no, it's, it is interesting it's yeah to think then do someone like a, a big pharmaceutical company would they have almost like an investment arm whereby they probably don't have the the, the talent or time or however you want to look at it and do they have then these kind of bucket of cash that they deploy into lots of little tiny startups all around the world for what could be promising. Well, they're almost like a VC mentality. Yeah. It's like, well, what if this company breaks the formula, cracks the code and delivers this pill formed in this case, weight loss drug? Is that, is that a, a format that's used? Yeah. And, the, and there was a, earlier on this year, I think we might have spoken about Horizon Therapeutics and Amgen, which is a big deal that got blocked by the, uh, by the US FTC for anti-competitive reasons. Now, the case, uh, and eventually it went through, but the case against that being blocked was actually this is the natural order of the pharmaceutical industry. If So let's say I'm a brand new biotechnology company that's just started. I'm going to need venture capital. 
I'm going to leave quite a lot of it. I recognize that I will not probably see any revenues for eight years. So in order for the VCs to feel comfortable funding these very, very early stage, no revenue stream companies is to understand or is to feel is to reach a degree of comfort that there is going to be a buyer. So these companies are often set up knowing that the seven or eight big pharmaceutical companies after five or six years might come sniffing, which is exactly what's happened in this case, because they need to bolster their pipeline. Obviously, these big companies do do their own internal R&D and they develop their own drugs as well. But it's very much part of the industry where, yes, it's a little bit like, you know, it's a little bit like internal VC, but it yeah it's the way that it works and it and it, it does tend to work relatively well cool well let, let, let's wrap it up there for for this show i think we've got time for a few more episodes before the year is out am i right in saying that yeah we'll do a couple more i think we might do a little uh 2024 predictions episode me versus you versus peers <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah could do that um what we'll do as well is um we'll drop a little quiz question, uh, perhaps on something that Stephen's mentioned, and we can see who is truly listening to, to some of the, the facts that were delivered, and then we'll keep an eye on the poll. But yeah, thanks everyone for listening. As I said at the top of the show, thank you so much for a pretty incredible year of growth for the, for the podcast. Super appreciate that. And yeah, we'll see you all next week. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.